Due to the graphic nature of this woman's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of death, murder, suicide, and abortifacients. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. Notorious. That's what they called Nancy Clem. Back in 19th century Indianapolis, she was the queen of the confidence games. She cozied up to friends and neighbors, then swindled them out of their life savings. But that's not how she earned her nickname. That she got in the fall of 1868 when she was accused of murder. And what made that such a big deal was her motivation. Before Nancy, people thought women only ever killed out of anger, lust, or revenge. But what motivated Mrs. Clem was cold, hard cash. And when it comes to money, what's a little murder between friends? Welcome to Female Criminals, a Spotify original from Parcast. History has seen its fair share of women in trouble with the law, but whether or not they were all criminals is sometimes open to interpretation. This is the show where we cover the full spectrum of women behaving badly. Last time we watched as Nancy Clem leveraged her good name to become a major player in the confidence game. But eventually, things took a chilling turn when one of her business associates tried to walk away from their operation. Today, we're plunging back into the Cold Spring tragedy. We'll follow the dogged investigation, the multiple trials, and examine how Nancy may have gotten away with murder. We've got all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. In the 19th century, Cold Spring was the place to go when you wanted to escape the hustle and bustle of Indianapolis. The breathtaking ravine was just a few miles from the emerging metropolis nestled along the bank of the White River. It was a place to relax and unwind, soak up the sun, and spend time with your loved ones. 
But on September 12, 1868, Cold Spring was a grisly crime scene. 29-year-old Jacob Young and his 28-year-old wife Jane had been shot and killed. Jacob with the large shotgun that was found beside him, and Jane with what authorities believed to be a smaller pistol, one that was never found. What they did find was a distinct set of footprints. Based on the tracks, investigators reasoned that after killing the Youngs, the perpetrator likely ran to Jacob's coat to pocket the thousands of dollars he'd been carrying around all day. Then they dashed off to a waiting horse and buggy to make their getaway. To investigators, this theory suggested there was more than one perp involved, a killer and their driver. But for the time being, they zeroed in on the footprints of the person who pulled the trigger. They took measurements and surmised that the tracks had been made by a woman wearing size three shoes. All they had to do was find her. Of course, this was no easy task. At the time, upwards of 40,000 people called Indianapolis home, and a size three shoe was one of the most common. So even if they knocked on every door in the city, any number of women could have fit the bill. Luckily, authorities had another lead to work with. By sheer coincidence, the chief of police knew exactly where one of the murder weapons had come from. Wendy Gamber wrote about this in her book, The Notorious Mrs. Clem, Murder and Money in the Gilded Age. According to her, Chief Thomas Wilson had stared down at the large, rusty shotgun at a pawn shop just a few days prior. He'd considered buying the weapon for his son, but ultimately decided not to. Investigators spoke with the pawnbroker and learned that the gun had been purchased on the very morning of the murder. But while the shop owner couldn't remember the customer's name, one of his clerks thought that he resembled a local named William Abrams. We covered this last time, but just in case you forgot, William was one of Jacob's closest friends. He was also one of Jacob's business partners. The two had made a comfortable living playing a confidence game for the past few years. Today, we'd say they were running a Ponzi scheme, but no matter what you call it, the nature of their business was shady. And when investigators learned about the operation, that made them even more suspicious that William had a hand in the tragedy, because in addition to purchasing the murder weapon, he had a clear motive to kill money. But before we get into the psychology of this story, please keep in mind that I'm not a licensed psychiatrist or psychologist, but we have done a lot of research for the show. And that research began with motive. These days, we'd classify people who kill for financial, material, or emotional gain as comfort gain killers. Think criminals like pirates, bandits, or in this case, desperate ex-Ponzi scheme partners. According to criminologist Scott A. Bond, prior to becoming comfort gain killers, such criminals are sometimes involved in theft, fraud, embezzlement, and other property crimes. As we already know, both William and Jacob made their fortunes by taking on loans and debts. But when Jacob wanted out, William knew it was going to affect his bottom line. That's motive. But when authorities accused him of killing his business partner, he swore he was innocent. While the Youngs were meeting their end at Cold Spring, William said he was running errands miles away in Indianapolis. Several witnesses backed up his alibi, but investigators still weren't buying it. And on September 16th, just four days after the double homicide, they charged William with murder. 
But while investigators celebrated the arrest, Indianapolis was in mourning. Despite Jacob's less-than-kosher business dealings, people saw the young couple as upstanding citizens, and the locals didn't think anyone, especially people who were so firmly middle-class, deserved such a gruesome death. So as their funeral procession moved across the city, crowds lined the streets to pay their respects. Which, at last, brings us back to the leading lady of this story, Nancy Clem. The 30-something had every reason to attend the funeral. For the better part of a year, she'd been playing a confidence game with Jacob and William, so in a way, they'd become something like family. And yet, as the long funeral procession passed by her home, Nancy remained by her gate and simply watched. When a neighbor asked why she wasn't taking part in the cortege, Nancy explained that she didn't know the Youngs. This was blatantly untrue, and plenty of people knew it, so it made Nancy look pretty suspicious. William didn't help her situation. As he sat behind bars at the Marion County Jail, he asked his brother Benjamin to go to Nancy and ask her for the money to pay for his lawyers. Benjamin found Nancy at her brother's home, and she gave him just under $5,000. Now remember that this was 1868. Five grand was more than some people made in a year. But somehow William blew through it all in just a few weeks. So Benjamin went to Nancy another three times to ask for more cash, until finally she had to tell him to stop. All of this back and forth was bound to arouse suspicion. And she was right. The police had been watching Benjamin as he visited first his brother, then Nancy, over and over. Pretty soon they started to suspect that Nancy was involved in the Cold Spring tragedy. The thing was, they had no conclusive proof linking Nancy to the murders. All they really had was the shoe prints, and as far as we can tell, they didn't want to spook her by demanding to look at her shoes. So for the time being, the authorities took a closer look at another set of tracks from the crime scene. These prints belonged to a horse. I know what you're thinking. Why in the world would investigators waste their time looking into these prints? It's not like the horse could have pulled the trigger, right? Well, after examining the tracks, authorities discovered that the horse pulling the getaway buggy was fitted with something called interfering shoes. This type of shoe prevented horses from striking themselves while trotting. Now, this wasn't an altogether rare thing. A lot of horses in Indianapolis wore interfering shoes. But in one of the local liveries, a place where people could rent horses and buggies, only one of their fleet was fitted with these kinds of shoes. Her name was Pet, and she was a chestnut sorrel with distinctive markings. And according to the owners of the livery, she'd been rented out on the morning of the Cold Spring tragedy for what was supposed to be a relaxing day trip. Instead, she'd been ridden to the point of exhaustion, suggesting she'd been forced to make a long and grueling journey. Pet came back in such bad shape that the customer's name was seared into the owner's mind. That name was Silas Hartman, and he was Nancy Clem's younger brother. When they made the connection, the investigators knew there was no way it could be a coincidence. 31-year-old Silas had to have been involved in Jacob and Jane's murder. So on September 22nd, they arrested him too. 
the pieces of the puzzle were coming together and a picture was taking shape. They knew that on the day of the Cold Spring tragedy, William Abrams had purchased at least one of the murder weapons. And it certainly seemed like Silas Hartman had rented the getaway horse and buggy. Now all authorities had to do was find the woman with the size three shoe. Or to be more accurate, they had to prove that it was the woman they already suspected. Thus began a series of interviews. Over the next few weeks, investigators spoke with anyone and everyone who believed they had some insight into the case. They also heard testimony from people who knew the suspects more intimately, including the help. Jane Sizemore had started working for Nancy earlier that summer, and the domestic servant told detectives that her mistress had some interesting habits. For example, she had a tendency to leave her size three shoes in Sizemore's room. Because of that, Sizemore got familiar with Nancy's footwear real fast. Sizemore told investigators that she remembered seeing a fresh pair of Nancy's shoes in her room just days before the September 12th murders. But on the 13th, those same shoes were dirty. She didn't think much of it at first. Sizemore simply placed them outside and went back to scrubbing the floors. When she was done, she went out to retrieve them, but the shoes had vanished and she never saw them again. Unfortunately, authorities never found the shoes in question, but at this point, it didn't matter. They'd gathered enough evidence about Nancy by now, and it was time to move in. On October 7th, they picked her up and charged her with murder. Mrs. Clem was going to court. Up next, Nancy's never-ending trials. It's been said that art is in the eye of the beholder. But what about greed or chaos? Hi, it's Richard from the Spotify original from Parcast, Unexplained Mysteries. This September, join us as we comb through the clues of some of the greatest art mysteries of all time. The Lost Da Vinci, the fake Rothko, the real identity of Banksy. If you've never listened to Unexplained Mysteries before, there's no better time to dive in than with this fantastic five-part special. You can also find hundreds of other mystifying stories and new episodes each week by following Unexplained Mysteries, free on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. By October of 1868, authorities seemed to have cracked the case of the Cold Spring tragedy. They were certain that Nancy Clem, her brother Silas Hartman, and her business associate William Abrams all had a hand in the double murder. Here's how they figured it went down. On the morning of September 12th, William went to the local pawn shop and purchased the second-hand shotgun. After that, he handed off the murder weapon to Silas, who made a solo trek to Cold Spring. Exactly how the trio would have known where their targets planned to spend the day is unclear, but that detail was less important than the broad strokes of the plot. 
Anyway, that same day, Nancy asked to join Jacob and Jane Young on their little day trip, so by the time her accomplices were in position near the river, she was strolling along the sandbar. Silas had quietly hitched up his horse and buggy, then found a camouflage spot by a clump of willow trees. He waited there until he saw the trio get close enough, and just before four in the afternoon, he raised the shotgun, took careful aim, and fired at Jacob's head. Jane let out a scream and started running away, but there was nowhere for her to go. Nancy pulled out a small pistol from her pocketbook and shot Jane in the head. Once both of the youngs were dead, Nancy tossed her pistol into the river. Then she ran toward Jacob's coat and took the thousands of dollars he'd stashed there. Afterwards, she linked up with Silas and the siblings booked it back to Indianapolis. To be clear, most of this is speculative. No one actually saw William hand off the shotgun, nor Nancy or Silas pulling the triggers. But in the eyes of the prosecution, there was more than enough circumstantial evidence to find all three guilty of murder. Of course, the trio swore they were innocent. In fact, they all claimed to have airtight alibis. Nancy, for starters, said she'd spent the afternoon running errands in town. She went to the post office, stopped in at a department store, then returned home to can grapes with her family. Likewise, William had a fairly busy Saturday afternoon. He told investigators that he'd picked up some peaches at a grocery store, then hit up another spot to buy some vinegar. Then he also went home to do some canning. Silas admitted to renting the horse and buggy. There was no getting out of that. But he swore he didn't drive out to Cold Spring. Instead, he claimed he'd headed towards the town of Lanesville to enjoy the day with a cousin. But that cousin never came to Silas's defense, which meant his alibi wasn't worth much. Not that the prosecution seemed concerned with whatever stories their suspects came up with. They were determined to press ahead with the trials. And Nancy was first at bat. She entered the courtroom in December, with everyone in Indianapolis watching her, eager to see what happened. That's because the times were vastly different from today. It was difficult for people to comprehend that a respectable, middle-class woman could commit such a heinous crime. And Nancy knew it. Maybe hoping to reinforce her picture-perfect image, she showed up for her first day in court wearing an expensive but respectable ensemble. Her tasteful brown dress had a fur collar, which she accessorized with a gold brooch, velvet hat, and a veil. Nancy was no stranger to being in the limelight. She always basked in the reflected respect people had for her father. Now she hoped that her reputation would prove her innocence. But just in case that wasn't enough, her team brought in over 50 witnesses to testify on her behalf. However, during the trial, it became clear that Nancy's husband, Frank, had gone around town asking people to be her alibi. As such, most of these testimonies were discredited. What Frank should have done was start his campaign at home. Then he could have headed off the testimony of Miss Jane Sizemore. Instead, Sizemore took the stand on December 9th to reveal that Nancy Clem not only had ties to the Youngs, she wore size 3 shoes. From the outset, it looked like the prosecution had a pretty solid case, but they were maybe a little too confident. Despite their long list of witnesses and their well-constructed arguments, they didn't consider who they were trying to convince. 
The prosecutors surely knew that Nancy's reputation and social status would work in her favor. They had to counter that. So during their closing statements, they suggested that because Nancy was self-reliant, she wasn't a virtuous woman after all. And if that was the case, then she was certainly capable of murder. Then they suggested that Nancy wasn't really a respectable lady because prior to the summer of 1868, she didn't have her own domestic servant, and that meant she, quote, did her own work. It was the kind of skewed logic that most people bought into in the 19th century. But according to author Wendy Gamber, the jurors didn't take those comments very well. Most of them were farmers who were married to women who were not only self-reliant, but they did their own housework. As a result, the prosecution's statements came off tone-deaf. It might have even sounded like they were judging the people in the jury box, which is never something you want to do. According to criminal defense lawyer William C. Costopoulos, a competent trial lawyer should be acutely aware of a juror's racial, social, and political background. That's because everyone comes with a certain set of biases and prejudices. And to ensure that the jurors find favor in their arguments, lawyers have to not only appeal to their logic and reason, but also their emotions. To put things simply, the more we feel good about a person, the more likely we'll find them credible. In the court of law, likability can mean the difference between verdicts. Nancy's defense team certainly understood this idea. Despite some issues with their witnesses, they humbled themselves to the jurors. They also leaned into the fact that Nancy was just like any of them. And in a way, she was. She'd been born and raised on a farm where she learned the values of hard work and determination. Then she used that knowledge to move up the class ladder in her 20s and 30s. Her self-reliance wasn't something to condemn, it was something to celebrate. More importantly, they stressed that the evidence against her was all circumstantial. No one actually saw Nancy at Cold Spring with a gun in her hand. There was no proof that she'd ever even owned a pistol. And with that much reasonable doubt in play, sentencing a hardworking woman to jail time or even death seemed immoral. It was a lot to think about. After two days of deliberation, the jury cast their votes and all but one favored acquittal. It wasn't an outright win for Nancy, but it meant she'd get another trial. In the meantime, she remained in jail. The second trial began in February of 1869. At this point, it had been about five months since Cold Spring, and everyone had their own opinion on the matter. But at the core of it all, the case against Nancy Clem was about social status. The world still viewed her as an upstanding woman, and Nancy played her part very well. She kept her sartorial choices tasteful and made sure that her reactions in court were always calm and collected. Unfortunately for her, her carefully curated image was about to be shattered. That spring, prosecutors added two new witnesses to their roster. The Chenoweths were a respected husband and wife duo, so their words carried a certain amount of heft. On the stand, they both swore that they'd seen Nancy and her brother Silas Hartman speeding down the road from Cold Spring on the day of the murders. It was the testimony the prosecutors had been waiting for because it placed the siblings in the vicinity of the murder. 
All of a sudden, things didn't look so good for Nancy, and in March of 1869, the 30-something was found guilty and sentenced to life behind bars. Interestingly, when Nancy heard the verdict, she maintained her cool and collected veneer. She returned to her cell in Marion County Jail, acting like nothing had changed. But not everyone took the news so well. Nancy's guilty verdict meant that her alleged accomplices, William Abrams and Silas Hartman, would surely receive a similar fate, maybe a worse one, and that prospect seemed to get to Silas. Over the next few days, he grew noticeably anxious and depressed. Eventually, he told a jailer he was ready to confess. During their conversation, he revealed that William had, in fact, purchased the shotgun, then handed it off to him in town. Silas then took his horse and buggy over to Cold Spring and waited patiently, as a third, unnamed party committed the gruesome murders. As for Nancy, he swore that she was innocent. Word of Silas's confession spread pretty quickly, but he wasn't around to answer for what he'd done. Sometime between March 9th and 10th, the 32-year-old died in his cell. At first, people suspected another murder. William Abrams was his cellmate, and it wasn't a stretch to think that he'd wanted to silence his chatty accomplice. But after further investigation, authorities determined that Silas died by suicide. And that's where his story ended. A few months after that, in September of 1869, William headed to trial. Just like Nancy, he was found guilty of murder and received a life sentence. But while the courts were done with Nancy, she wasn't content to sit back and accept her fate. For the next couple of years, she and her lawyers fought tooth and nail, and in 1871, they got another do-over. That fall, Nancy went to court for a third time. Like the first go-round, the jurors couldn't reach a verdict. So in June of 1872, Nancy got trial number four. Once again, she was found guilty of second-degree murder and received a life sentence for a second time. Even then, Nancy still wasn't done fighting. Her team filed another appeal, and a fifth trial was slated for the spring of 1874. But by this point, everyone in Indianapolis was over the Cold Spring case. It had been over five years since the murders, and all the trials had cost taxpayers a fortune. People just wanted it to end. So that April, prosecutors declined to prosecute and entered a plea of nalle prosequi. This didn't mean that Nancy was found innocent. It just meant that the prosecution was done trying her. Suddenly, after years of fighting, Nancy was a free woman. She returned home and ran right back into the arms of her husband, Frank. It should have been the reset button her family needed to move on from the six-year nightmare. She could have settled down and lived a quiet, comfortable life. Instead, she made plans to get right back to her old tricks. Nancy Clem, the con artist, was back in business. Coming up, Nancy's final act. Now back to the story. By the 1870s, Nancy Clem was nothing short of notorious. In fact, that's what newspapers all across America dubbed the queen of the confidence game. 
Despite her now dubious reputation, people in Indianapolis still wanted to do business with her, so the 40-something went right back to her old schemes. In exchange for large sums of money, she handed out promissory notes that offered high-interest payments in return. Then she doled that pot of money to other borrowers. But as we already know, the game she was playing wasn't sustainable. Someone was always going to lose out. And in November of 1876, a local sued Nancy for failing to repay a loan. The following spring, she had a run-in with a farmer named Hezekiah Hinkson. He'd seeded her money for several business dealings, but after noticing some red flags, he wanted his money back. He sent his son-in-law, William Wishard, to collect. Wishard gave back the two promissory notes Nancy had given Hinkson, and in return, Nancy handed Wishard a wad of cash. Afterwards, she made sure to tear up the notes that had made their deal official, and that was that. But later, when Hinkson took a closer look at the stack of cash, he realized he'd been swindled. Some of the bills were actually cut-up newspapers. So in the spring of 1877, Hinkson took her to court. Before the trial, Nancy gave a deposition in which she claimed to have never seen the promissory notes. But later, she changed her tune. That's when prosecutors charged her with perjury. In March of 1880, Nancy was found guilty and sentenced to four years in jail. And this time around, there was no getting out of it. The presiding judge denied her motion for an appeal. Later that year, she was carted off to the Indiana Reformatory Institution for Women and Girls. It was the first American prison specifically designed for women and was meant to better protect and serve their inmates. But it wasn't a cakewalk especially for a woman like Nancy. Having spent years building her wealth so she could afford luxuries like domestic servants, she was assigned to laundry detail. Then, to make things worse, her husband filed for divorce in 1883. Frank had stood by her side through a lot, but it was clear to him that his wife was never going to straighten up. And he wasn't wrong. After the 50-something was released, Nancy still had her eyes peeled for her next scheme. Around the late 1880s or early 90s, Nancy began working for a man named Michael Slavin. He patented a product called Slavin's Infallible Female Tonic, or SIFT for short, and advertised it as a cure-all for female troubles, bloating, menstruation, but really, it was a liquid abortifacient that caused women to get sick and have a miscarriage. Nancy joined Slavin's enterprise as a salesperson and started peddling SIFT door-to-door in Indianapolis. Eventually, she expanded her territory and traveled to other cities. Pretty soon, she was the number one seller on the team. From what we can tell, she should have been rolling in dough. And yet, it looked like she was barely scraping by— but that was just because she'd stopped dressing in the tasteful outfits of her heyday, opting for a shabbier look instead. According to Nancy, this was a smart business decision. You see, her main clientele were people from low-income black neighborhoods, and in her mind, poor people wouldn't want to buy from someone who looked, well, wealthy. And she may have been onto something. In a 2009 Harvard Business Review article, social psychologist Roderick M. Kramer explained that people tend to trust others who not only resemble them physically, but are also members of the same social group. 
That's likely because there's an assumption that there's an underlying connection between them, and that connection sparks trust. By dressing in cheap clothes, Nancy was sending a message to her clients. She understood what it was like to be poor. With that seed planted, she came across as more sympathetic to their problems and therefore seemed less likely to sell them a bad product. Her tactic worked so well that she wasn't just targeting women, she flogged the tonic to men, too. In the winter of 1892, Nancy sold several bottles of sift to 58-year-old John Martin. He'd been bedridden for weeks, and according to his wife Amanda, Nancy promised that the cure-all would help him get better. So John gulped down three bottles. Shortly after that, he died. Amanda was more than upset and blamed Nancy for her husband's death. She told the county coroner that Nancy had claimed she was a doctor and had prescribed her husband the remedy. That kicked off an investigation, which meant Nancy was potentially facing charges of manslaughter and practicing medicine without a license. Of course, Nancy wasn't going to admit she was at fault. She insisted that Amanda was mistaken. She'd never claimed to be a physician, she said. Then she blamed John's death on a host of other problems, like his diet and overall inability to take care of himself. Determined to get answers, the coroner performed an autopsy, which actually confirmed some of what Nancy was saying. John had lived with severe kidney problems and likely died from peritonitis. With that, Nancy was in the clear again. For the next few years, she kept moving, continuing to peddle sift all across the country, until finally, in 1897, her health took a turn for the worse. One day when she was visiting her boss in Indianapolis, she started feeling dizzy and began vomiting. Michael and his family did their best to make her comfortable, but things didn't look good. Over the next few days, Nancy went in and out of states of lucidity. In the moments when she knew what was going on, she turned to religion, praying and reading the Bible. She also offered some interesting, slightly cryptic thoughts on the Cold Spring tragedy. In June of 1897, just days before she died, she said, quote, I have borne the blame for a great crime that I had nothing to do with. It would have done great harm to others besides the guilty ones if I had told all I know. Exactly what that meant isn't clear, even more than a century later. Was Nancy telling the truth? Did she really have nothing to do with the murder at Cold Spring? Had she been protecting the real culprit for decades? Or was she just determined to go to her grave with her good name intact? With everything we know about Nancy and the crime, I know where I stand, but I'll let you make up your own mind about her guilt. What I can tell you for sure is that Nancy Clem seemed responsible for a shift in the way people thought about female criminals in America. Prior to her murder trials, no one expected that a woman would participate in cold-blooded murder. Sure, they'd killed for love or jealousy, but money? No one had really believed it possible. Nancy's story changed all that. She might have gotten away with murder, but in her size three shoes, she marched right into the history books. You can find her under N for Notorious.
Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back soon with a new episode. For more information on Nancy Clem, amongst the many sources we used, we found The Notorious Mrs. Clem, Murder and Money in the Gilded Age by Wendy Gamber and The Cold Spring Tragedy Trial and Conviction, as published by A.C. Roach, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Female Criminals and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Nick Johnson, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. This episode of Female Criminals was written by Jane O., edited by Joel Callen, fact-checked by Bennett Logan, researched by Mickey Taylor and Chelsea Wood, and produced by Joshua Kern. I'm Vanessa Richardson.